Well, like I said, tonight we're coming to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in this basic Bible doctrine series. It's also known as pneumatology. And I think this might be one of the least frequented branches of systematic theology. And you might go to a seminary library and start pulling systematic theologies off the shelf. You turn to Christology or Soteriology, Doctrine of Salvation. You'll find well-worn, crinkled pages. And maybe you flip over to Pneumatology, Doctrine of the Spirit. And pretty new, crisp pages, I would think. This shouldn't be the case, though, because the Doctrine of the Spirit is rich. You know, a lot of people these days just want to experience the Spirit. They don't want to study the Spirit. It almost sounds unspiritual to study the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's meant to be felt, not studied, some might say. But God has revealed plenty in His Word about the Holy Spirit, and we need to study that. How else are you going to know if that feeling you have is even of the Spirit? We need the Word to guide us. Our Christian lives should not be devoid of feeling and emotion and worship. But we must always be truth-driven. We need to let the truth of God's word be the foundation of everything we think and feel and believe uh, to be true. And that's certainly the case with the Holy Spirit. In fact, maybe that's why there's so much confusion and misunderstanding on the true nature and work and role of the Holy Spirit today, because not enough people are actually studying what the word says about him. They're simply going off of feeling or intuition or an experience, not seeing if that corresponds to what the Word actually says He's doing, who He is and what He does. Christians aren't studying pneumatology enough. So we're going to try and reverse that a little bit this evening in our time together, continuing our our survey of Bible doctrine, this time the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And just in case you haven't been with us, this is a basic Bible doctrine series. We're aiming to study each of the major branches of theology with just one lesson each, cramming in a whole lot to just one lesson. So we're not trying to overturn every stone, but just get get a solid grasp on these areas of of theology and doctrine. We're going to do that tonight with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and, and just covering the major elements. And the major elements would be the personhood of the Holy Spirit, the deity of the Holy Spirit, and the works of the Holy Spirit. That's not everything. That's going to cover a lot of what we need to know about the Holy Spirit today, his personhood, his deity, and his works. That should give us a pretty solid intro to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with the first third there, the personhood of the Holy Spirit. We all know Jesus Christ is the central figure of the Christian faith. He receives the love and the adoration of all believers, as well as the scorn and the hatred of unbelievers. And needless to say, Jesus has been at the center of attention throughout church history. That includes all the positive teaching, all the worship, and all the false teaching and heresy. So there's plenty of false teachings out there around Jesus. Not as many about the Holy Spirit, but he gets his fair share. There's going to be more with Jesus. He's the main figure. He's at the forefront. The Holy Spirit gets his fair share. Many of the same people who would attack the deity of Christ would also attack the deity and the personhood of the Spirit. Just as some would say Jesus was not God, not a member of the divine Godhead, neither was the Spirit. Take it a step further than just denying his deity, they would deny that he's even a person. Rather, some might claim that God's Spirit is an impersonal force. It's just God's power in action. It's his active force. 
That's the position of Jehovah's Witnesses today, for example, and all other Unitarians. And our goal with this study is not just to focus on all the areas of theology that are contested. No, we, we just want to know what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. We want to know our God and, and how he exists. And therefore, studying the personhood of the Spirit is valuable no matter what. The fact that it is contested by some just means we should know it all the more, even more. And so we're going to do that now. We're going to start with the personhood of the Spirit. If you remember back when we studied the Trinity a little bit in the doctrine of God, we established the doctrine of the Trinity with three basic statements, very basic statements, that one, God exists in three persons. Two, each person is fully God. But then three, there's only one God. And so here we're going to contend with that first statement that God exists in three persons as it applies especially to the third person. Again, some deny that, uh, arguing that the, uh, deny that, that God exists in three persons, uh, arguing that the Holy Spirit, for example, is not a person. He's not a personal being. He's an impersonal force, like electricity, like wind. It's a force that can do things, but not a personal force, an impersonal force. The Spirit really just another way of talking about God's power. It's merely an extension of God's power. It's a sending out of God's power. It's not a person. But the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible does clearly present the Holy Spirit as a person. Hence that the claim will make that God exists in three persons. And for one, you have the word spirit, which is pneuma. And in the Greek, that's in the neuter, meaning it's neither masculine nor feminine. It's neither one. And We'd expect when it's talking about the Holy Spirit to see a neuter pronoun, namely it. But that's never the case. You always see a, or almost always see a, a masculine pronoun with this word when it's talking about the Holy Spirit, namely he. Now, obviously, it doesn't communicate a male gender, but it does communicate personhood. We refer to forces and inanimate objects as an it or a they, but to personal beings as a he. And you get that all the time with the Holy Spirit. But more than that, the Spirit's personhood is demonstrated by his faculties. What I mean by that is this whole idea of personhood we can define as possessing three qualities or three faculties, namely intellect, emotion, and will. This is what distinguishes a a personal being from an impersonal force, intellect, emotion, and will. You see those with God, see those with Jesus, and you see them with the Spirit as well. The Bible presents the Holy Spirit as possessing all three. So a quick survey. Intellect. Do we see the Spirit having intellect? Most certainly, and it's revealed in many of his key roles. For example, the Spirit is described as a teacher. Not that we're just learning indirect lessons from the Spirit, but directly teaching God's people. The Spirit guides. The Spirit instructs. Inanimate objects or forces do not possess the intellect to do these things. We see John 14, 26. You know, as always, by the way, I'm going to go through a lot of scriptures. If you're real fast, you can try and flip in your Bible and follow along, but I'll be listing them for you. John 14, 26, Christ says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And the Spirit has many other functions requiring intelligence. He counsels. He intercedes. He reminds. He convicts. He testifies. Romans 8.27 even refers to the mind of the Holy Spirit. 
And clearly the spirit is an intelligent being and a personal being at that. He displays intellect. So first, intellect. Second, emotion. And the Bible also portrays the spirit as having emotion, genuinely responding to other personal beings. So for example, Ephesians 4.30, the spirit can be grieved. Even, even in the Old Testament, Isaiah 63.10 describes God's spirit as being grieved by sin. And on the flip side of that, the Spirit is also spoken of as experiencing joy. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6 talks about the joy of the Spirit. I mean, last time I checked, impersonal forces can be neither grieved nor made to rejoice. They, they don't respond like that. And furthermore, the Spirit can be resisted to, lied to, or rather resisted, lied to, quenched, all resulting in offense. Three verses here, Acts 7.51. It says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and are always resisting the Holy Spirit. Resisting what the Spirit is trying to show them. Acts 5.3. Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Spirit can be lied to. And the first Thessalonians 5.19 straight up tells us, do not quench the Spirit. Again, the whole point of this is that none of these actions would make any sense if the Spirit were not a person, but just an impersonal force. What does it mean to say you're lying to the wind or you're lying to a magnetic field? These impersonal forces, it means nothing. And even if you did somehow lie to the wind, it wouldn't take it personally. Right? It's an impersonal force. There would be no offense. But the whole point is the Spirit is grieved by sin, taking it personally offended, being a divine person, which we'll see later, because he is a person. He takes it personally. There is offense. This only makes sense if he's a person. We'll be reminded later, like we just just read a little glimpse of how Ananias and Sapphira were literally put to death for lying to the Holy Spirit. And then we'll also see what Jesus had to say about those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Sounds pretty serious. Much more serious than blaspheming, if that were even possible, electricity or the wind. It just makes no sense. If we can add one more emotion seen in the Spirit, though, we could add love. Romans 15.30 references the love of the Spirit. And I trust you know that the chief fruit of the Spirit, the first one, the result of the Spirit's work in our lives is love. We never get the sense that the Spirit is some impassive force, but a personal being bearing emotion. So intellect, emotion, and lastly, will. Does the Spirit have a will of his own? Having a will means having the power of sovereign choice and decision, and the Holy Spirit clearly has both. The Holy Spirit has a mind and makes decisions. Right reference Romans which talks about the mind of the Spirit. But you also see the Spirit's will and how the Spirit distributes gifts. For example, 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. It's talking about spiritual gifts, the whole chapter, a bunch of different gifts. Everyone gets a different one. And which spiritual gift do you get? It's up to the Holy Spirit. He distributes to each member of the body a spiritual gift just as he wills. 
It's not up to you. It's up to the Spirit. His will is choosing and giving. It's also seen in how the Spirit regenerates. John 3, 7 and 8, Jesus said, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And yes, he's using a metaphor of wind to describe the Spirit. The whole point is you can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. You can see the trees blowing. You can see where it's moved through. And so it goes with the Spirit. Spirit cannot be seen, but we can see its effects. When it moves through a person and regenerates them, their lives are different. But the point is, uh, this new birth, Christ is teaching it's a, a divine birth. It literally means birth from above. And you don't control the wind. It moves on its own. The wind blows where it wishes. It wills. It's up to the Spirit, God through the Spirit, uh, to, to make such a move, to bring people to life. So in all, the Holy Spirit is not revealed in Scripture to be an impersonal force, but a personal being. It's one thing just to claim, throughout the claim, that the Spirit is just an expression uh, uh, God uses to describe sending out His power. It's another to prove that claim from Scripture. You're not going to find that. And to this contrary, Scripture makes clear the Holy Spirit is a personal being, and He demonstrates these essential marks of personhood, intellect, emotion, and will. I will point out as a final note, though, that the Spirit has His own will, but He does submit his will to the will of the Father, just as Jesus does when Jesus came to earth, submitting his will to the will of the Father. So it goes with the Spirit, submitting to the Father and to the Son. It's the nature of headship, even within the Trinity we've seen before. Romans 8, 27 says, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit's interceding according to the will of God. You know, later in this study, we're going to look at the works of the Holy Spirit. And as we do so, that's only going to further establish the personhood of the Spirit because we will see many works that only persons do. I've already highlighted a few, but you can add the Spirit teaches, He testifies, guides, convicts, regenerates, searches, commands, sends, intercedes, just make the point again, none of these make any sense for an impersonal force or inanimate object. When was the last time you heard of electricity interceding for someone? Never, I take it. But the Bible presents the Holy Spirit as a personal being. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit is a personal being without a form. He has no body, hence the, the, the description of spirit or the old Description of ghost, the Holy Ghost, just uh, without a body. But what makes the Holy Spirit so special is that he's not just a person, he's a divine person. Both his personhood and his deity need to be established and upheld. So let's do that now with, with the latter, with the deity of the Holy Spirit. So cover the personhood of the Holy Spirit. He's a personal being, not an impersonal force, but he's not... A human person, he's not an angelic person. Those are personal beings as well. Limited personal beings. The Spirit is a divine person, part of the Godhead. So we need to establish the deity of the Holy Spirit. 
Let's do that now. The deity of the Spirit. The same people who want to deny that the Holy Spirit is an actual person of the Trinity also want to deny that the Holy Spirit is divine. They deny his personhood. They deny his deity. They have to, to uphold their Unitarian position. But just as the Bible portrays the Spirit as being a person, it upholds him as being a divine person, that the Spirit is fully God. It is true the Bible has a lot more to say about the deity of Christ, but it's not silent on the deity of the Spirit. We're going to demonstrate it along four lines. So let's, let's start. First, the Holy Spirit is called God. The Holy Spirit is called God. This is Acts 5. Again, you can turn there if you're fast, but this is the Ananias and Sapphira passage. Acts 5, I'll read 1 through 4. It says, A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. Early church, there's a lot of hospitality involved to care for the poor. So wealthy couple had some land, sold it for a good price, and gave it to the apostles for the poor. And they could have just gave half. They could have just gave one dollar. God doesn't care. It didn't matter. They, though, wanted to make it seem like they gave it all to look righteous, but they knew they were holding back a lot for themselves. God didn't care if they gave it all or half. There's no command here. This was a free will offering, but their sin is trying to appear self-righteous, even though their hearts were keeping back some for themselves. And so they knowingly were deceiving the apostles that they might appear righteous, giving away all their money. Verse 3, though, Peter prophetically knew. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain in your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Meaning, you're free to do whatever you want. Why did you do this? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? And then he says, you've not lied to men, but to God. That's a very significant passage. The same context, the same breath almost, Peter Let's him know you've just lied to the Holy Spirit. In lying to the apostles, you really were lying to the Spirit. And at the same time, you weren't even lying to the apostles. You were lying to God. And the fact that he says both in such close proximity, very obviously equating lying to the Holy Spirit as lying to God. That's a very significant passage that, you know, go on the Jehovah's Witness website as it did today, and it's skipped over. They don't mention this passage. You know, also in the Old Testament, there are many prophecies about Yahweh God coming to save his people. He'll be the one to save his people. But we know so many of those prophecies are fulfilled by Jesus. He is Yahweh incarnate, fulfilling all these promises of God saving his people because he is God incarnate. You get a similar thing with the Holy Spirit. If all these Old Testament passages where God is saying something or promising something, Yahweh God is, is saying something, But the New Testament attributes those same words and promises to the Holy Spirit. It's like, who said it? Did God say it? Did the Holy Spirit say it? Well, both. The Spirit is God. There's many examples. I'll just give you one. Hebrews 10, 14 through 17, the author says this. He says, by one offering, he, Christ, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. 
And he says, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us. For after saying, and he's quoting Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So he's talking about how we're, we're totally forgiven. All of our sins have been paid for. And he's quoting the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31 to establish this. But the thing is, you go back, you read Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34. Like, who said this? Who made this promise to, in this new covenant to remember our sins no more? Very obviously, Yahweh. I mean, it says Yahweh God is making this promise. He's clearly the one issuing these words. But the author of Hebrews now tells us, that it was the Holy Spirit who testified this to us, and that the Spirit said their sins, their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Who is it? Who's, who's issuing such promises? God, the Spirit, both. It's, it's God the Spirit. As we know, we'll see later, the one who actually is behind the work of inspiration. You know, further establishing uh, the deity of the Spirit, we, we should insert here the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. When we're talking about the Spirit being called God or the Spirit being referred to as God or divine, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit passage is pretty significant when you actually stop and think about it. Matthew 12, 31, 32. Christ says, Any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. And you just consider this notion of blaspheming the Spirit. And first off, blasphemy, by definition, relates only to God. You can't blaspheme a human or an object or a force. I mean, the sin of blasphemy is only truly in relation to God. So the whole fact that Jesus says the spirit can be blasphemed legitimately, it already attributes to him deity or divine standing. But second, I mean, we normally just think about the father being blasphemed or even the son as we learn about him. But here Jesus says it's actually more serious to blaspheme the spirit. And although we're not going to get into beyond the scope right now to talk about what that is, the blasphemy of the spirit, just wait a couple years till we get to Matthew 12 and Sunday mornings. We learn all about it. But you can see how the spirit is being elevated to the, the, the status of Christ, the, the son and the father, at the, at the very least the son, uh, where it's actually even more serious to blaspheme the spirit than the son for his work in testifying of the Messiah. Uh, throughout the New Testament, although it's not as prominent as uh, attesting to the deity of Christ, the spirit is at times called God, referenced as God and as divine. But let's keep going as we're building the case for the deity of the spirit. Just building within you a conviction. You're not going to remember every verse. You're not going to remember every point. But this builds within you the biblical case. It's there. The spirit is divine. Second line of reasoning, the Holy Spirit has divine attributes. The Holy Spirit has divine attributes. And we did this with the deity of Christ. We surveyed his divine attributes. And since this is just a survey, we, we didn't even go into every single one. Just mentioned a few prominent ones. We'll do the same with the spirit, uh, but showing how he has attributes that belong to deity, that belong to God alone, that are not 
communicable. For example, omniscience, that the knowing of all things. And you see this, you see the Spirit's omniscience revealed in the fact that he is said to search and fully examine the depths of God's mind. Kind of gloss over that, but think about that passage and what that's saying. I'll read the passage, 1 Corinthians 12, or 2, 1 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. It says, the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man, except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. I mean, the more you think about that, meditate on that, it's saying something quite profound. I mean, it's talking about the thoughts of God and then the depths of God's thoughts, how far they go. And the depths of God's mind are unfathomable and infinite. And there's no finite being or created being that could truly and fully know them or search them out. It would take eternity to search the mind of God and the thoughts of God because they're infinite. Only an equally divine, infinite being could search the full depths of the mind of God. It can never be said of a created finite being to be the one to search out the depths of the mind of God, to know fully the thoughts of God. Only you know your thoughts. Only the Spirit knows fully God's thoughts because he is God the Spirit. You have also omnipotence. We already looked at a few of the Spirit's works. We'll save more for later as we look at a whole section on the works of the Spirit. But again, many of his works require divine power. These are divine works. Notable example would be his role in creation and then his role in new creation or regeneration. And Scripture tells us these are divine works. I don't think we have to be told that creation and then recreation are divine works. Only God can perform these, yet the Spirit does as well. We see the whole triune God having a role in these divine works. Here's the Holy Spirit's part. True, in Genesis, you only get a glimmer, but it's not without significance that he shows up in the second verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was formless and void. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Doesn't give us any more, doesn't tell us more what the Spirit did, but it is not without significance that a little bit later, Genesis 1.26, we see God using the plural describing himself, let us make man in our image. The progress of Revelation would go on and fill in some blanks, but even in the first chapter of the Bible, there's clear notes and hints and revelation that, that God, there's a plurality within the Godhead. You also have Job 33 verse 4 though, where he testifies, he says, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. Indeed, we know that God breathed life into Adam and Eve and we could put together, it's the spirit of God who's responsible for animating life, especially human life. He brings life to all things. And the same thing goes for animating new creation, bringing new life to sinners through new birth. That's, that's a role of the Spirit. That's an equally divine work. I think it takes more power or, or less power to bring someone spiritually dead to life. It's, it's the same power which, with which God created the world. He sends forth to bring new life, and it's really God the Spirit doing that, the personal God affecting it. 
We'll come back to this passage later, so I'll just briefly mention John 3, 5, where Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And that reference, being born of the water and the Spirit, is a callback to the Old Testament promise of regeneration in Ezekiel with the New Covenant. And this, this regeneration, this birth from above, would involve a washing, a type of washing, a cleansing, a spiritual cleansing, and that would be affected by the Holy Spirit. And this regeneration is work of recreation or resurrection. It's life from death. And no, no human nor angel has that power to call dead things to life, to call things to be that weren't once there. The power of creation, the power of recreation is God's alone, but the Spirit wields that power. The Spirit brings it about. We could reference the attribute of omnipresence, being everywhere present. You get a hint of that in Psalm 139, 7 and 8, where David says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You could also point out eternality. Eternality, the Holy Spirit is referred to as being eternal. Hebrews 9.14 says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, and cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself to God. You see the whole Trinity mentioned there. But of note, the Spirit is referred to as the eternal Spirit. Now, if again, I have one more attribute, though, just to finish up this section. Oops. The, uh, the primary title for the Spirit, though, is not the eternal Spirit. He's most often called the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about, though, or thought about that fact, though? God's holiness is transcendent. It's one of his essential attributes. He's holy. He's set apart from creation. He's set apart from sin. God alone is holy in the the capital H sense of the word. Yet, it seems like sometimes we gloss over the fact that he's most often referred to as the Holy Spirit. Not just the Spirit, just the Holy Spirit. So the attribute of holiness, that's a divine attribute. The Spirit shares in this supreme divine attribute. He's, he's the Holy Spirit. He shares in God's transcendent holiness, and the New Testament authors especially make that clear as they're almost always referring to him as the Holy Spirit. Why do they throw that in there? And they're indicating he's of God. He's as holy as God. Again, you see that, for example, when Christ talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit it should not be forgiven him. Again, God's holy, set apart from all sin, all creation. That's true of God the Father. That's true of God the Son. And that's true of God the Spirit. And don't you think that's why that whenever we see the majestic, transcendent holiness of God on display, it calls forth a, a proclamation of, of the, the threefold holiness of God. Right? Isaiah 6, 4. He sees his holiness and he sees God. And that the praise of the angels is holy, holy, holy. It's the same thing in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. This threefold exclamation of the holiness of God. And we can't help but think and reason that's because this is a triune God. Holy in the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
So the spirit is referred to as God. The spirit has divine attributes. Let's add a couple more here. Move things along. Now, thirdly, the Holy Spirit performs divine works. I wanted to, to drill down on this a little bit further. We've referenced this a couple of times in passing, but when it comes to his deity, the Holy Spirit performs divine works. We've already seen that. I mentioned creation and regeneration. Those are part of his attributes, those attributes that God has, in, namely in a, his role as creator. But thinking about other works that really testify of his divine nature regarding the spirit. How about inspiration and the work of inspiration? I'm not sure if you think of that as a divine work, but it is. Scripture tells us that the work of inspiration is a work of God. Second Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is inspired by God. Literally, you know, it means God breathed. Where does scripture come from? Divine revelation. And now our, our written revelation, it comes from God. Right? You would agree? All scripture comes from God. Yet another verse, 2 Peter 1.21, makes clear that it's, it's coming from God the Spirit. Right? 2 Peter 1.21 says, No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And the Spirit is the one who connects the dots and is actually the, the divine agent behind the inspiration of Scripture, the giving of God's revelation to man, which is a divine work. And in many ways, parallel to the divine work of inspiration, you have the divine work of incarnation, Christ's incarnation. Just think, just as the Spirit was the divine agent bringing about the written word of God on earth, so the Holy Spirit was the divine agent bringing about the incarnate word of God on earth. Right? In Jesus, we see the divine nature come together with the human nature and enter this world. Isn't that scripture? The divine mind come together with a human mind entering the world in, in written scripture. You get that with the person of Christ. This is a, another divine work, but we know it's the spirit who was the agent who brought that about. Virgin birth, Matthew one twenty, The angel of the Lord says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her, is of the Holy Spirit. And several times the Spirit is mentioned as the one affecting this work of, of the, the virgin birth, bringing the divine Son into the world in human form. Sounds pretty divine to me. We can add intercession. We know how the Spirit intercedes for us. Romans 8, 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Again, it really it means absolutely nothing to speak of an impersonal force or inanimate object interceding for believers. The whole notion of interceding, going between, appealing on behalf of another person is a purely personal work. Only a personal being can intercede for another personal being. But, now think further. Is the Holy Spirit interceding just for you or for all believers? All believers. Today, you might say millions of believers. That requires deity, right? No saint or even the greatest angel is omniscient, omnipresent, or omnipotent. 
Nothing in scripture suggests that any saint or even the greatest created angel can even hear the prayers of millions of people, let alone answer them, have the power to answer them. The whole work of intercession, receiving prayer, answering prayer is a purely divine work. The spirit is right in the middle of that, interceding for us, interceding simultaneously for all believers all the time. That's a divine work, intercession. Let's add here one more, and that would be resurrection. Is there really a more telling divine work than resurrection? But we learn actually the member of the Trinity responsible for bringing this about, carrying with the theme of creating and recreating and bringing to life, the spirit gives life originally through creation, at salvation, through new birth, and the end glorification at the resurrection. We find it's actually the spirit who does this. Romans 8, 11, it says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Again, you see the whole Trinity. And it is true that the father sends the spirit to raise the dead, but we've already established he's not sending an impersonal force. This is the third member of the Trinity. This is God, the spirit, a person, uh, one of the persons of the Godhead doing this work, raising the dead. Certainly a divine work. So we have the Spirit being referred to as God. He's, he has the attributes of God. He performs the works of God. And this is how you, you build the case for the deity of the Spirit. Let's finish with this. One more here. Number four. The Holy Spirit has divine associations. The Holy Spirit has divine associations. This means that there are several places in, in the scriptures where the Father and the Son and the Spirit are all mentioned. They all come together and they're put on equal footing. On equal footing, known as Trinitarian formulas. That these would otherwise be super blasphemous if the Son and the Spirit were not as divine as the Father. We have these writers of scripture who are all monotheistic Jews. Right there, clearly monotheistic Jews. Remember, there's only one God. But through progressive revelation, they were understanding more how the nature of the one God is, exists in three persons, each of them being fully divine. Right, This doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's a word made later just to describe, though, the teaching that is in the Bible of the nature of God. And people wonder, like, okay, the word's not in the Bible, but is, are there verses that talk about Father, Son, and Spirit, like together as a trinity? And yes, there are. I'll give you just some. I mean, one of the biggest is Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission. Christ says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. When someone becomes a disciple, you are to baptize them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of these members, Father, Son, and Spirit, are equal participants, participants in the salvation of this new believer. And therefore, they're to be baptized, identifying with, taking the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And the more you, you study and dwell on that passage, the more you realize, I mean, if the Son and the Spirit are on the same level of, as God, that, that just doesn't make any sense. That, that's blasphemous. That's wrong. The Jews would be right to pick up stones to, to stone you, to, to make such a claim that you can't put the Son and the Spirit in the same discussion, the same level with the Father when it comes to this identification 
unless the Son and the Spirit are divine. But there's a passage where you see Father, Son, and Spirit together. There's many. How about Paul's benediction in 2 Corinthians? 2 Corinthians 13, 14, last verse. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. His benediction is clearly Trinitarian. The same thing goes for the Apostle Paul's greeting in the book of Revelation to the churches, Revelation 1, 4, and 5. He says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace. He says, from him who is and who was and who is to come. In the context, that's talking about God the Father. He says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. In the context, that's talking about the Holy Spirit. The word seven just refers to the seven churches, the, the complete spirit who goes out to all the churches. And then he says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. So John's opening greeting, Father, Son, Spirit, right there together. You also have 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6, the whole chapter on spiritual gifts. But Paul says this, notice the parallelism here. He says, now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. He's making a point here. He's using parallelism to make a point, namely that there's a bunch of different gifts. Talking about spiritual gifts, there's there's a massive variety in spiritual giftingness and ministries. But that's put in contrast to the unity of the Godhead. The point of unity among diversity. That's true within the Godhead and in the church. But you'll see how he interchanges Father, Son, and Spirit in this parallelism. It's, the Trinity is, is alive and well there. And showing uh, really on the basis of unity, uh, diversity among unity in the Godhead. You see that that same basis bleeds over into the church as the basis of our unity among diversity with spiritual giftedness. One more I'd give you is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We don't have time to read such a long passage, but that might be the greatest of them all. Make that your homework. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. That's Paul's uh, exposition on how each member of the Trinity takes part in our salvation. I'll just tell you, verses 3 through 6, you see the Father's work, where the Father chooses, the Father predestines. Verses 3 through 6. Verses 7 through 12, we see the son's work where the son dies. He he sheds his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. He died on the cross. And then verses 13 and 14, the spirit seals and secures us for the day of redemption. You definitely read that one on your own, but you have these verses. There's many more where the spirit come together, like the baptism of Christ, father, son, spirit, all there, all partaking Put all together, the Spirit is referred to as God. That's backed up by the Spirit having divine attributes, the Spirit performing divine works, the Spirit having divine associations. Yeah, the Spirit does not get as much attention as Christ and the deity of Christ in the New Testament. That's on purpose. The Spirit humbly submits himself to the Father and the Son, and all glory is given to the Son. And and the triune God is, is happy with that. That's, that's his nature, to give glory to the Son. But it's equally clear and important to establish 
that he's just as divine. He is part of the divine Godhead. We are right in saying that there are three persons in the Godhead. Each person is fully divine, yet there's still one God. Now, after our study of God and our study of Christ last week, here we have the study of the Holy Spirit. As you put those all together, you really see fully established this doctrine of the Trinity. It's not something made up by church history. It's in the scriptures, right to believe in it. And it helps us get to know better our God, just that the mystery, the majesty of the God we serve, and we want to know his nature. The Holy Spirit is a divine member of the Godhead and a divine person at that, the third person. Some more reflections on that to come, but as time is ticking, I want to cover this third section here, namely the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a massive section we're going to try and squeeze in here at the end, but we did some good work. We had to. We have to establish the personhood of the Spirit and the deity of the Spirit. That's foundational. We need to know that. Let's finish with the final section on the work of the Holy Spirit, which is so vast, probably more than you've imagined, how many things the Spirit does and is responsible for in the Scriptures. Let's give you a little insight. But many years ago, there's a story of an American with an English gentleman. They were visiting the Niagara Rapids. And he said to his English friend, Nakama, I'll show you the greatest unused power in the world. And he took him to the foot of the Niagara Falls. And he says, behold, the greatest unused power in the world. All that water just rushing down, unused. His English friend said back to him, no, I don't think so. The greatest unused power in the world is the Holy Spirit of the living God. And I think he was right. That that sounds about right. The greatest unused power in the world is the Spirit. But what exactly is the Spirit's power for? What does the Spirit do? What are the works of the Holy Spirit? We've, We've alluded to some in short, but now let's talk about them more. We've seen some previews. What else do we have? The Spirit has so many roles. He has his invisible hands in so many things. But, you know, just in keeping with the basic of this basic Bible doctrine series, we're going to view the Spirit's work just from a broader, more holistic perspective and give you three categories, each with many works under them, but three categories of the Spirit's work. So we'll start with first that the Spirit enables. The Spirit enables. Just broadly speaking, he enables Enables what? Well, a lot of things. He enables the beginning of the Christian life, the continuation of the Christian life, and, and our, our work in the church. We'll talk about these. Kind of a, a sub-point here. The Spirit enables by giving life. So first here, he enables by giving life. Like we know we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, but the mechanism of that salvation is the Holy Spirit. He's the one applying Christ's atonement to us and affecting this thing called new birth, regeneration. In one verse we didn't look at here is Titus 3.5. Titus 3.5 says just that. That God saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. It's a great verse. We're not saved by works. We're saved by God's mercy. But then he he goes on in that same verse, just telling us a a little bit about the means by which we were saved. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing 
of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So we see the means of salvation is this washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. This washing is a spiritual washing, not a physical washing. And the word washing governs the next two nouns, namely regeneration and renewal. And they both are affected by the Spirit. We're talking about a, a cleansing here and a newness taking, a, uh, taking place. Maybe you've seen an ad for a woman's facial scrub that promises to regenerate and renew your skin. That's kind of what the Spirit does for your soul. He's regenerating, renewing your spin, giving or, uh, your sin, or your soul rather. And if you wash with the Spirit, you don't get rejuvenated skin. You get rejuvenated life, new life. That's kind of what's behind this. This word for regeneration literally means born again. It's the word for birth and new crammed together. It, it just means new birth. Greek authors use this to describe you know, the return of spring, life coming about again. And this renewing, you can kind of think of recycling. You take something old and you renew it for new use. Of course, to do so, it has to be cleansed and, and renewed. And that's what's behind this word of renewal. At salvation, God could, <clears throat> excuse me, destroy you and just recreate you entirely, but he doesn't. He takes your spirit, your soul, which was dead, and he doesn't do away with it. He just brings it to life. There's, it's cleansed, forgiven of sin, no longer defiled and cut off it's, uh, through forgiveness, through justification. At the same time, there's a new birth uh, that brings it to life. It's now living. Its heart is beating again, so to speak, before God. We are brought to life, and the Spirit is the one who does this. Before, we were spiritually dead in the inner man, in the soul, unable to respond to God. The Spirit comes along, gives new life, enables the beginning of our Christian life by bringing about this new birth. That's actually how we're able to thereafter respond in faith. But for now, this is what the Spirit does. He affects new birth. This whole work was foreseen. I mentioned that is the Old Covenant in a or the, the passage, I'm sorry, in the New Covenant in Ezekiel. Let me just read that for you. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. We get the promise where God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. And then he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Notice the imagery of water here. Salvation is pictured as being cleansed by water, removing our defilement. But also notice God's spirit, the role of the spirit in this work of salvation. And that, that promise in Ezekiel doesn't spell out the inner mechanics of what the spirit will do to us per se. This is just the promise form. But it's pretty clear the Spirit has something to do with this cleansing and enabling us to walk in God's wills, uh, will. The, the new life, this life from death, this heart of stone being replaced by a heart of flesh is something the Spirit will do. And I mentioned John 3. Jesus later is the one who explicitly connects these dots when it comes to new birth and the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, John 3, 3, he's talking to Nicodemus. He tells him, unless one is born again, can't see the kingdom of God. Unless you're born from above, you can't enter. You can't see the kingdom of God. And then he explains later in verse 5. 
He says, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he, he is referring back to this new covenant promise from Ezekiel 36, confirming that unless the spirit works in a person to cleanse them and regenerate them and make them born again, they, they won't see heaven. So we see here the spirit's work in salvation. The Spirit is the one who enables the beginning of the Christian life by affecting regeneration and new birth. He, he enables us to come to life. He starts us off. He's the agent who applies Christ's atonement to us. You can actually go a lot further with that. But we need to keep going. The Spirit enables. He enables by giving life. A second kind of set point here, he enables by giving power. He enables by giving power. You know, one day we're going to be glorified. We'll be free from our bodies. We'll be free from the old man entirely. Given resurrection, resurrected bodies. One day our personal sin will be no more. But that's not today. We're new in spirit. We're regenerated. But we still have the old man, the outer man. We're still sinners. We have the flesh with its sinful thoughts and desires. We at times give in to it. We sin. But in this age, God is glorified as we now Deny the, deny the flesh and walk in righteousness. All because, because we want to, because we love him. We know that the flesh, however, can be very strong in our lives. It can drag us, call us back into sin. But thankfully, the Lord has not left us powerless to walk righteously in this age after our salvation. He's not left us powerless to deny sin, to put off sin, to put on righteousness. And the power he's given us to do this is the spirit. The same spirit who gave us new spirits now gives us power to walk by the spirit, be controlled by him, that we might be conformed to Christ, that we might walk righteously. Many verses on this, like Galatians 5.16, says, If you walk by the spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. And later, verse 22, and we learn about the fruit of the spirit. And he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. He gave us power to come to life. We need that same power to live now by his ways. Ephesians 5.18 tells us to be filled with the Spirit. Romans 8, 5 and 6 says, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Unfortunately, we don't have time for a, a full discourse on how to walk by the spirit, taking that even further. But for now, just rest assured that apart from daily depending on the spirit's power, renewing your mind through the word he inspired, you're not going to get very far. If you're not living with a daily dependence on the Spirit's power, you won't become like Christ. The Lord has caused his Spirit to permanently indwell us for a reason, and one of the main reasons is for our sanctification. Now, a third section here. The Spirit enables. He gives life. He gives power. Thirdly, let's add, he gives gifts. He gives gifts. In addition to beginning the Christian life, via salvation, and then uh, continuing the Christian life via sanctification. 
The Holy Spirit also enables the building up of the church by, by giving gifts. And in the context of the church, it's the Holy Spirit who enables Christians to, to function as God wants us to function, as members of the body, each serving with a spiritual gift for the building up of the body in love. That's how God wants us to live within the church, and the Holy Spirit enables all that. Our time is running short. I was going to go through 1 Corinthians 12. We might cut that for time, but 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11, a huge passage on the giving of spiritual gifts. You can read that on your own, but it's, it's crystal clear the Spirit is the source of all these gifts. They all come from the one Spirit. These aren't natural talents or abilities. They're supernatural gifts. The Spirit gives them out as He wills, and why does He do it? Why is the Spirit giving all these gifts? It says in verse 7, these are given for the common good. These are given for the building up of Christ's body in love. A diversity of gifts called together for the same purpose. We might be built up in love. So overall, the work of the Holy Spirit. He's the great enabler. Big picture, he's the great enabler. He enables the beginning of the Christian life. He enables the continuation of the Christian life, fueling sanctification, and he enables the life of the church, the building up of Christ's uh, body, the church. Let's go another one. A second big picture work of the Spirit. The Spirit guides. He enables, and now he guides. These are kind of, like I said, big picture categories here. He guides. And we'll be quick with this one because we actually covered a lot of this in the doctrine of the Bible. But in a parallel way, just as the Spirit enables the beginning of the Christian life and the continuation of the Christian life, so the Spirit enables the beginning of the Scriptures, inspiration, and the continuation of the Scriptures, namely illumination, bringing them to light. The Spirit delivers and exposes God's Word to us, and thereby he guides all believers. The Spirit guides us by his work of inspiration and illumination. So, inspiration. We've already studied this. It's the process by which the Holy Spirit works through human authors, delivering the written word of God. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. But Second Peter 1.20-21 20 adds, he says that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. You can add to that the work of illumination. The Spirit guides us day to day as we read the Scriptures by this work we call illumination. That in addition to inspiring the Scriptures, giving us the finished product of the Word of God, now the Spirit rightly guides us to understand them, to apply them. The giving of Scripture was not by matter of one's own interpretation, and neither is the reading of Scripture. The Spirit works in both. Here, illumining the truth of God to our minds. Just as a light illumines a dark room, so the Spirit is seen to, to like a light, illumine our mind that we might rightly understand God's Word. We need the Spirit's work. See that in First John 2. We might add John 16, 12, and 13. And Christ says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he'll guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak, 
and he will disclose to you what is to come. His other verses like that in the Upper Room Discourse, really it's the promise of an inspired New Testament, but in principle and the ongoing work of the Spirit uh, to illumine and guide us into all truth uh, in an ongoing sense. We'll have to cap it off there for the sake of time, but we'll finish with one last category of the Spirit's work. We'll finish here. The Spirit unifies. The Spirit enables, the Spirit guides, the Spirit unifies as we think about the work of the Spirit. And look, there are more. There's a lot more the Spirit does. It's just a servant. But this is a good place to end on the unity the Spirit brings. You know, one additional an essential function or work of the Spirit is to bring unity to the church. Unity among believers is hugely important to God, such that Christ in his, his final high priestly prayer, he prayed multiple times for, for us, his disciples, current and future, that we would be one, that we would be one so that the world may know that, that God sent him. Christ ties the, the functional unity of the church to our testimony that he is Lord, that, that unity Jesus prayed for, though it's not natural, it's supernatural. It's not just going to happen. It takes a supernatural power to make it happen. And scripture teaches that it's the power of the spirit that does that. The Holy Spirit is the one who will unify the church and bring together all these diverse people from diverse backgrounds into one body. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. It says, even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. You know, the whole chapter is on spiritual gifts. We, we skipped over verses 1 through 11. But it made the point, the spirit, the one spirit is giving all these diverse gifts. There's all these spiritual gifts. It might lead you to believe like there's so many different gifting that might create division in the body of Christ. But no, to the contrary, we're, we're called to be unified and the spirit will unify us. He gives us all these gifts separately to make us rely on one another and calls us to all contribute to one another. I don't have all the gifts. You don't all have all the gifts. But as we work together and stick together, rely on one another, we become interdependent. The Spirit is the glue that that keeps this diverse body together. He provides this unity. doesn't matter your, your background, your race, your ethnicity. All humans can come together as one in Christ's church. Only the power of the Spirit accomplishes that. It's very similar to Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says this, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. It's just one church, one God, one spirit. We're brought together with one baptism. And the, the oneness is pretty obvious there. The spirit has unified the church. That's his job. That's his work. He has unified the church. 
Functionally, though, we are called to preserve that unity by walking by the Spirit, being guided and filled and empowered by the Spirit. It's now a very big part of our mission to uphold and preserve the unity of the Spirit. There's a lot more to the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Already what we've learned tonight should build some greater appreciation for him. The Spirit is invisible, but that doesn't mean he should be missing from our lives. I mean, he does so much, his hand can be seen in, in pretty much every other area of doctrine. And the more you get to know him and see his work, the better. I'm really I only got a taste of that this evening. But if I can end with, with one word of special appreciation, I would set your mind on Christ's upper room discourse. It's recorded in John 13 through 17. It's the night before his death. He's gathered his disciples together for, for one final meeting, one final time of instruction before he dies. And this is where, though, he unloads on them teaching on the Holy Spirit. He's mentioned before, but it seems like this is a lot on the Holy Spirit in this last night. Christ knows he's going to die not long thereafter. He's going to depart from the earth. But he desperately wants them to know, like, it's not a bad thing. He's not leaving them. He's not abandoning them. No, this is actually to their advantage because as Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down. It's better. It makes us wonder, like, how could it be better how could it be better to have the Spirit than to have Jesus with us personally? Let's listen to a few verses. I, I've summarized them here. Just listen. John 14, 16 and 17. Christ said, I'll ask the Father. He will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him. Because he abides with you and will be in you. John 14, 26. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. John 15, 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And then lastly, John 16, 7. Christ says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Just notice a few things in closing here. Notice Jesus promised this spirit would be called another helper. Or he is another helper. And the first helper, paraclete in the Greek, means one called alongside another to help them, to encourage them, to intercede. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was their helper. He was walking alongside his disciples, helping them know and worship God better. But now that's going to be the Spirit. He will be a helper in just the same way to these disciples. But it goes further. He says he'll be another helper. The word for another in the Greek is alos or alos. And that means another of the same kind. It's a word that speaks of another of the same kind. And so just as Jesus was their helper, so will the Spirit be. Which means no impersonal force was going to come help them and dwell with them. Now, Jesus was a divine person helping them personally. The Spirit would come down as another divine person helping them personally. 
It goes even further. This Holy Spirit, this helper would dwell with us, but not just with us, within us. Jesus was this helper to his disciples in his incarnate form alongside his disciples, outside them, speaking to them, teaching them. But the Spirit will come down as Spirit and dwell inside of us. Dwell with us always, no matter where we go. And this is why it's to our advantage that Jesus goes up and the Spirit comes down. In the same upper room discourse, Jesus made a promise, John 14, 23. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And he says, and we will come and make our abode with him. That's a mysterious, majestic promise. We, we don't fully understand that, that the father and the son come down to the believer and they make their abode, their dwelling place with you. Now who believe the father, the son dwell with you, in you forever. That's a monumental promise. The church corporately and us individually are now the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. That, that's a promise that tests our understanding. But listen, the Holy Spirit is the only one that can fulfill that promise. He is the one that fulfills that promise. As the Spirit comes, so we, we receive fellowship with God the Father and God the Son and, of course, God the Spirit. This isn't mystical, but it is spiritual in a way we don't fully appreciate, you know, as we now have the indwelling Holy Spirit by faith in Christ. And the whole triune God is now with us, always in us, always present, not to curse, but to bless, to help, to intercede, to empower, to secure, to preserve. There's unending encouragement and power that comes from that truth, that promise the Holy Spirit brings it about. The surface is, has just been scratched tonight. That's it. We, that's all we really did. But I just hope you can meditate further on, on the glory of God in the indwelling spirit. Just to thank God and praise him for sending the spirit down. Partake in, in a deep communion with the triune God. Knowing he's with us intimately and personally. And because he's with us, let us now walk worthily. Let's walk by his spirit. Let's pray to finish our time. Good God in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your spirit. We do praise you for sending the spirit down. It can be hard to understand, but we, we know it's better that Christ went up and the spirit comes down. You've given us that the greatest gift there is, the greatest unused power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The divine person who has given us life and now is with us to empower us to live for you, to make us like Christ he secures us for glory and will indeed one day transform us from glory to glory. There's so much encouragement here, so much majesty in the person of the Spirit. We want to be those who, who make much of the Holy Spirit, not just from feeling or emotion or, or whim, but from truth, from what we see in your word that we can genuinely appreciate and apply, put to life as we now walk by this great Spirit you've given to us. May we do that this evening as we depart, be those who are known by the Spirit and walk by the Spirit. Christ, in we pray. Amen.